Well, listen, if you're new to Lakeview, uh, we are working through a series that we're calling Would You Protest? Uh, Normally, if you joined us on a Sunday morning, we would be studying through just a section of scripture. We usually move through chapter after chapter, studying through an entire book in the Bible, uh, because we feel like that's where God has revealed himself in the word, and we just study through the word uh, primarily from the pulpit. Uh, But we are doing a series now uh, for the month of October, maybe bleeding over just a tiny bit into November as well, because October 31st of this year marks the 500-year anniversary of a very significant event that happened in church history. There was a monk named Martin Luther who, in reading the Bible... And in engaging, he was not only a monk, he was a university uh, professor. And so his job was to study theology. And he had been studying the theology of scripture. And he noticed that there was a variance, a difference between what he was reading in scripture and what the church in his day was practicing and experiencing. And so in, in order to engage that, he wrote out thoughts that raised the discrepancy of these issues between what the Bible was saying and what he was seeing and hearing in the practice of the church. And he wrote those thoughts down and he nailed them to the, the church in the door in the church in Wittenberg. And thus began the Reformation. And he, along with others, would have formed the basis of their objections, their discussion, out of, out of five statements that eventually came down through the ages to be kind of clarified. Those five statements that are up there, the sola statements, uh, are the statements of the Reformation. And we're going to move through each one of those. Last week we introduced the series. This week we're going to move through sola scriptura. But we have put this under the banner of would you protest? Because what we want to think about is not just a study in history, not what did those guys do, and, and really you know, like the battle of some place long ago and all that happened and they were brave, etc. Sometimes that can feel really distant from us. Like, does that really matter for us? Well, this was a battle over ideas. This was a battle over beliefs. What do people believe? Well, today we're still believing something. All of us are. We're still engaging thought, being taught things, and we're going to make decisions about whether we agree with this or we agree with that. We do that all the time. And there are many thoughts that come to us that that we, we may not officially protest them, but we don't subscribe to them. We have a basis. We have a reason why when something comes to us and says, ooh, ooh, Keith, pick me, believe me, practice what I'm saying, we have a basis to say, Uh, yes, I think I will. Or no, I think I won't. And so that's a form of protest, if you will. You just don't buy into every idea, and no one does. And what's interesting in this setting is when Martin Luther took a stance one day and put these statements up, and we call this the Protestant Reformation. There was a protest involved, but I think it's a little mischaracterizing of what he was doing the day that he did that. Because Martin Luther was not in a place where he was saying, okay, this is it. I'm going to sever ties with the church. I'm going to nail this to the, to the door and it's over. And I'm going to go off and start my own thing and pull away from the church. That's not what he was doing. Right, here's an interesting quote from 
History.com, I think, gets it right, and so do many other commentators who would reveal this as well. Acting on this belief, and this belief had to do with the basis for salvation during that day, he wrote, quote, the disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences, also known as the 95 Theses. A list of questions and propositions for debate. Popular legend has it that on October 31st, 1517, Luther defiantly nailed a copy of his 35 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. The reality was probably not so dramatic. Luther more likely hung the document on the door of the church matter-of-factly to announce the ensuing academic discussion around it that he was organizing. He was a professor at the university in Wittenberg of theology. It would have been a normal fair to have theological discussions based on what he was studying and teaching. The 95 Theses, which would later become the foundation of the Protestant Reformation, were written in a remarkably humble and academic tone, questioning rather than accusing. He just wanted to talk. Can we talk these things over? Can we have a conversation about what it is that we believe and why we believe what we believe? An accurate view of history has to incorporate this. Who protested whom first? This man says, can we talk about this? Now, if you follow what happens in history next, is the church gets wind of these ideas that have been posted. This is slow-moving news, so this takes time for the church to get its hands on this. The church gets its hands on these 95 theses, their response back to this man requesting a conversation about these isn't, sure, we can talk. Let's sit down. Let me see why you're thinking this way. The response was a demand that he renounce all that he has said in this category and recant of the positions that he seems to be taking by publishing these things or be labeled a heretic and burned at the stake. Now you tell me who was protesting whom in that moment. And this is an interesting thing because I I realize I I run the risk and I know we run the risk. And this was a a great prayer element for us in terms of recognizing this moment in history. Is that this could touch background, personal backgrounds, even for people today. Who have traditions and backgrounds connected with this Reformation moment. And it's not my desire or any of our desire to create an offense for us to study through this material. But a question is raised, is this material relevant? Is what was written down and nailed to that door relevant for anybody? See, back in that day, the thing that was being wrestled through was the question of how does one get right with God? That was the fundamental issue that was being discussed, taught on, solutions were being given. This is how you get right with God. And this is how you get right with God. So that's the fundamental question. How does one get right with God? And the reformers in the 16th century had a different view than the church had on that answer. Was was there a significant difference between the two views? 
Did it really matter that this conversation was had? Was somebody right or wrong in this? Does it even matter? Right now, some people revisit history and stare at these solas and go, aren't we all just saying the same thing? Be careful how you interpret. Are we really saying the same thing? Because if you go back in history, when he nailed those things to the door and they got presented to the church, the church didn't respond by saying, Martin, lighten up, man. We're, We're pretty much all saying the same thing here, did it? The church responded by saying, you will not keep saying these things. You will stop and desist and you will recant them or you will be labeled a heretic. So were these issues significant to the church? Yes, they were. Were these issues significant to the reformers? To believe these things, to put your faith in them, to make them credible, to stand in public and say, I believe that would and could cost you your life. At minimum, it could kick you out of the church and make you an ostracized member of the community. Yet, they were willing to do that. Was this question and these issues significant to the church? Yes. Was it significant to the reformers? Yes. So it's kind of an awkward thing for any of us to be today, kind of glancing back at history and concluding that, you know, this... I don't know that this debate, this issue really matters. Well, just say, if you are looking back on these issues and concluding that, you need to look more carefully. Because what, what that posture advertises is you really haven't looked very carefully. These are significant differences that need to get clarified. So today we're going to move into the, the issue of sola scriptura, right? This is a Latin phrase that was was used to describe these basic tenets of agreement and disagreement. So sola scriptura simply means scripture alone. And that sola word, that alone word, was a very important and prominent word in this reformation because over time the church had developed this tendency to take the ideas of the Bible because it starts with the Bible and then to add something to it. So each of the solas recognizes that at some point in history, the church was taking scripture and then adding something to it. And the reformers come along and say, no, 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 no. The scripture alone. And then they would take the grace through which salvation comes to us and the church would add something to it. And the reformers said, no, no, grace alone. And they took faith, the response to what God has done in saving us. And the church said, something in addition to faith and the reformer said no 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 faith alone so that's where we get these alone statements but but let me clarify something what alone doesn't mean scripture alone doesn't mean I think I wrote this in your outline that no other teachings were valid or helpful or influential It meant that scripture alone had the highest and final authority over what they believed and practiced. So there there would be teachings, there would be writings, there would be all kinds of education that was coming into the church that was valuable and helpful to be respected, to be appreciated, to benefit from in life. Not just the scriptures, But at some point, something needed to have authority over everything else. And the argument of the reformers 
was that that needs to be scripture alone, not the contribution of human reasoning and thinking and people's ideas rivaling the scripture, scripture alone. All right, so why the 16th century? Why does this happen here? Probably a number of reasons, but one thing I want to highlight is this tripwire I'm going to call, the tripwire of the Reformation, the tripwire from Martin Luther in particular, but others before him, were the practice of indulgences. Right? The epicenter is not something that we find in the Bible. We don't find indulgences in the Bible. So this was something that had been added to the ideas of Scripture. And for the reformers, that thing stuck out. And it had all kinds of issues and corruption with it. Let me, let me read you a bit of a lengthy quote here, but it'll summarize a lot of thought historically about this issue of indulgences. Dr. Eric Gritch says, Why? Luther was calling for a debate on the most neurologic issue of his time. The relationship between money and religion. Indulgences from the Latin indulgentia, permit, had become the complex instruments for granting forgiveness of sins. The granting of forgiveness in the sacrament of penance was based on the power of the keys given to the apostle according to Matthew 16, 18. And was used to discipline sinners. Penitent sinners were asked to show regret for their sins or contrition. Confess them to a priest. Confession. And do penitential work to atone for them. Satisfaction. Indulgences were issued by executive papal order and by written permission in various bishoprics. And they were meant to relax or commute the penitent sinner's work of satisfaction. By the late 11th century, it had become customary to issue indulgences to volunteers taking part in the Crusades to the Holy Land against the Muslims. All sins would be forgiven anyone participating in such a dangerous but holy enterprise. After 1300, a complete commutation of satisfaction, plenary indulgence, was granted to all pilgrims visiting holy shrines in Rome during Jubilee years. Abuses soon abounded. Permits were issued offering release from all temporal punishment. Indeed, from punishment in purgatory. For a specific payment as determined by the church. Some popes pursued their edifice complex, or their building of things, by collecting large sums through the sale of indulgences. Pope Julius II, for example, granted a jubilee indulgence in 1510 the proceeds of which were used to build the new Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. In 1515, Pope Leo X commissioned Albert of Brandenburg to use the Dominican order to sell St. Peter indulgences in his lands. Albert owed a large sum to Rome for having granted him a special dispensation to become the ecclesiastical prince ruling three territories. He borrowed the money from the Fugger Bank in Augsburg, which engaged an experienced indulgences salesman the Dominican John Tetzel, to run the indulgences traffic. One half of the proceeds went to Albert and the Fugers, the other half to Rome. Tetzel's campaign gave rise to the famous jingle, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The issue of indulgences had now become linked to the prevalent anxiety regarding death and the final judgment. So there, there was this idea, right? Remember, we started in the first century with this. 
And we're going to add ideas to it as we move through history. And at some point, the idea that one could perform acts, one could visit shrines, one could visit relics, one could make a a particular donation to the church, and the impact of those actions would be to lessen the number of years in purgatory that you personally were going to spend, or could help release someone whom you love who had gone before you who was in purgatory, right? So if you've read the Bible, you would know that that kind of idea just isn't in the scriptures. So at some point, it becomes added. At one point in Luther's life, he visits Rome. And Rome was a a shrine of opportunities for indulgences. So one could go and visit all kinds of sacred locations. One in particular was was called Scala Santa. It was the Holy Stairs. It was believed that these stairs, which actually at one time were in Jerusalem, were in Pilate's Praetorium. So that when Jesus on his, in his trial and his, his going in and out of Pilate's presence would have traversed these stairs... And so that became holy stairs. And they actually had the stairs removed from Jerusalem and brought to Rome. And they are there today. In fact, you can visit them and do exactly what Martin Luther did. You can go there and purchase indulgences at the stairs. And what you would do is you would kneel on each stair, saying particular prayers at each location, having purchased an indulgence for a loved one who was in purgatory. And so he did. He went to the location He did that, and he got to the top of the stairs, and he pondered for a moment, and he said, is it even so? Is is this even true, what I just did? And isn't that the operative question? Suddenly, there was this idea that if you did these things, it would have this effect. It would have this impact on people's lives in this particular way. But who says that's true? And that's the question he was asking. Who says this or that is true? And that's the question that we want to get at today. Who says anything that you and I believe is true? Who says so? Somebody stands in a pulpit in your church and says X, Y, or Z. Who says that's true? Somebody stands in a cathedral. Somebody stands in an official church status and says X, Y, or Z. Who says that's true? It's who makes it true that's the authority. And that's of critical importance. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Are We Together?, says the formal issue, which was the underlying issue, the issue that was not in the limelight, but nevertheless was at the center of the whole dispute, was the question of authority specifically the question of the authority of scripture so let me let me visit this issue of authority for a moment i'm going to i'm going to call this the origins of authority and the mystery of authority so let's we're going to walk through some history but first we're going to we're going to look at the scriptures first and i think i've put most of these in your outline so you can follow along from there or you can turn to them if you'd like but listen to the way the scriptures teach us to look to the scriptures. That's what I want us to see in this. And this is all these little points. People have written volumes on just the little points I'm making. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I say this in a small sound bite that's sufficient. And so this, is, this has been a real battle because these sub points are books for many folks. 
But, but here's the unique thing. Listen to the tone. When Scripture speaks about Scripture, it teaches us how you and I ought to relate to Scripture, how we should look for authority. So, okay, okay, remember, at some point, somebody's going to stand in front of humanity and specifically stand in front of the church and say, thus and thus are so. You should, must, shall believe this. And you're going to have to answer the question, should I? And how will you do that? What will be the basis to figure out whether that latest statement is in line with what? Listen to how the scriptures speak. Luke chapter 24. This is Jesus after the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. And he's meeting with his disciples. And it says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right. So Jesus meets with his disciples after he's been resurrected. And in his first meeting with them, he does a Bible study with them. In his first meeting, he picks up his own life and he says, this life that I've lived and all that I've done is that which was already spoken. So he ties himself, if you will, he holds himself accountable to the scriptures. Acts chapter 17, in the Apostle Paul's ministry, we see the same thing. He said that Paul went in as was his custom And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul is going to show up in a gathering of people and he's going to tell them they need to believe something different than what they believe. That's what he did in Acts chapter 17. Paul, who gives you the right to tell people that their current belief needs to be adjusted? It needs to be changed. Who who says you're right? Is Paul just making a case from his own personal tradition? From the tradition that's come down recently from Jerusalem? No. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul highlighted the reason, the authority for what I'm saying is the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So this is the pattern of how the Bible speaks about the Bible. How the scriptures speak about the scriptures. How the presentation of thinking and belief in the first century sounded. It was an appeal to people not to believe the authority of the individual. But to find the authority in the scriptures. And what's amazing here is that even Jesus does that. That's mind-blowing. I mean, can you get this meeting? This is after his death, burial, and resurrection. He's already put on a three-year fireworks show that's blown everybody's mind. Quieted storms, taken authority over this, authority over that, raised the dead. Now he's been crucified, buried, brought back to life, resurrected, and standing right in front of them. Don't you think he would have the right to say, hey, dudes, just go do what I said do, period. But he sits with them, picks up his ministry, and says, this is under that authority. This is what that describes. 
So he shows how what he was, who he was, what he taught, what he accomplished is in line with the scriptures. That's pretty profound. I don't think it gets any more profound than that. I think if you move through history from that moment on into the church, the church had better sound that way. If the son of God sounded that way, the church had better sound that way. It had better say whatever it is that we're saying, it's because the scriptures teach this. Later in the first century, the Apostle Peter is writing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Remember that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration where the apostles are there when the voice from heaven commends the Son of God? He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, this is an interesting, interesting verse because it's, it's almost like the first few verses there installed this hierarchy of ideas that could float their way into your life. And Peter begins by saying, hey, you know what it is that we're teaching? Uh, this is what it's not. It's not cleverly devised myths. That's not what we believe. That's not what we're giving to you. But that category is available. It was available then, it's available now. It's been available throughout all of church history. Cleverly, these words are interesting, cleverly devised myths. Right, so at the end of that phrase is the awareness that this is an accurate. At the beginning of it is not that awareness. At the beginning of encountering this idea that's been added to the scriptures is something's clever about it something sounds like that's that's wise that's helpful that's clarifying that's what it feels like and it's a cleverly devised myth it's devised it's got design to it it's got intentions to it it's got strategy in it So when you encounter something, it's real easy to see that myth word and to say, well, of course, we're not going to believe something that's just made up by people. That's ridiculous. Don't believe that. But when it comes to you dressed in cleverness and devised, devised, it's trying to answer something. It's found a crack, a weakness that other people can't seem to explain that right there. But this explains it. It's designed for that right there. Oh. Oh, yeah. Now that makes sense, right? Now you got something different on your hand, don't you? So that's one source of what you and I might believe. And then he goes on and says, we, we're not believing that. We were eyewitnesses, right? We were in the presence of Jesus when he taught. We watched what he did. We heard him. 
and we saw the miraculous, we heard the voice of God speak specifically and affirm who he is. We are eyewitnesses of these things. Now, these are apostles. They are the first century witness of the gospel. Several of them will be used to write a a scripture that has authority. Peter is one of those given the authority to write scripture. And he's going to record these events. But there's an interesting thought about the category of eyewitness. That eyewitness component is, is this personal experiential component. I had an experience. And I'm going to tell you about it. And what are you going to do with that? If I stand up here today from this pulpit or somebody 2,000 years or 1,000 years before me stands in some official capacity in the church and says, I had this communicated to me. I had a word, a thought, an insight, a doctrine communicated to me in prayer, in an elevated state, whatever. What do we do with that? Are you obligated to get under the authority of that? But what if I'm 1,200 years ago? Are you obligated then? What if I'm an official with the church 1,500 years ago? Are you, are you obligated then? And this is a very helpfully clarifying thing. This is, this is, again, how the scriptures teach us to look to the scriptures. The apostle Peter here is saying, listen, I know firsthand I had this experience. And nothing you're ever going to say to me is going to change that. But I have an even more sure word than that. You got something greater than that? Peter, you experienced this personally. You saw this. You heard it personally. I did. And I'm completely convinced of it. But I have something even more sure than that. I have the scriptures. You see how the scriptures look to the scriptures? That's where you run for shelter. This is the place where we're absolutely sure. This is the apostle Peter. This guy isn't some dope smoking dude from the 60s. Coming, hey man, I was tripping the other day. After I saw Strawberry Fields, I had this revelation about Jesus. And I was sure, man, I'm sure. That's, this is not who this is. This is the Apostle Peter. And he's had this incredible experience, but he submits that to the Scriptures, just like Jesus submitted his ministry to the authority of the Scriptures. Why? Well, the passage goes on and says, you will do well to pay attention to the scriptures. You will do well to pay attention. That that word means to adhere to, to attend to the scriptures. It's it's the Greek word prosecco. And it it was a nautical term that was used to what guided you, what you set your mark on as you navigated in the waters. That point you will do well to pay attention to that because that's an absolutely located thing and if you don't pay attention to that you're going to drift into something else that's what's being said but why why pay attention to the scriptures why not just take peter's word for it he was on the mountain he had the experience because the scriptures are like no other revelation of man that's what's in this verse right scripture is not the thought or interpretation of man, right? Go back and look. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is very unique revelation that takes place in this that we call the Bible. First, scripture is not the thought or interpretation of man. Even if that man is well-intended. Even if that man is right on. Even if that man writes an awesome book. You guys know we quote from all kinds of books. We appreciate the contribution and the thoughts of authors who have studied and prepared themselves to see some things and help the church to see some things as well. But those books are not scripture. And we might agree with them. And we might borrow influence from them. And we might have our lives shaped and informed by them. But they are not scripture. Because they don't meet this prescription. Scripture is not created by human production or reasoning or application or initiative. Right? Scripture is God initiated. Scripture is God imparting something, awakening something, carrying men along. He imparts something to man. Not men sitting down and saying, hey, you know... I think we need to address this or that. You know, I'm hearing this going on out there in the church world. I think we need to get together, form a council, and consider some things. Now, this, is, this is how many traditions get their origin. Right? They are the consideration of a gathering of people who shave the edges off, discuss. Many councils took place for years. And at the end of that council, an official position would be addressed and given and proposed to the church. Carrying the authority of the church, carrying the authority, the same level of authority as the scriptures. Those contemplations, those discussions, as well-intended as they were, and many of them were very well-intended, very necessary, and in some ways very helpful. But they are not the scriptures. The scriptures are unique. They are given by God in a unique way. They carry unique authority. They are the origin of whatever authority you and I have to say, this is why I believe that, that, and that. We need to be able to pick that, 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 and up and go out and bury it right here in this word and say, I believe it because I find it right here. Because this is the origin for authority. Everything else comes after this has already been established. And the church introduces an idea. And it adds to it. And the reformers come along and say, whoa, 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 sola, sola, alone. Don't do that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. says, from childhood, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy about what he believes, right? What you believe matters. From childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work now 
again, these are, these are big thoughts and I'm running through them fast, but there is an argument through church history about the sufficiency of Scripture. Whether Scripture alone is sufficient to lead us into full belief. Right? Well, the Bible testifies that it is. That what we have in the Scriptures is sufficient for us. We don't need to add something else to it. It is sufficient. But in this passage, you again visit these same dimensions of how the scriptures speak about the scriptures the scriptures are sacred writings they are different they are unique they are set apart there is nothing else in the category with them timothy you remember that sacred writings he's not even having to make that point because that's an accepted reality there's nothing rivaling the scriptures in the scriptures and There's a uniqueness here about the scripture that is the same thing Peter was saying. Peter's trying to describe that somehow the scriptures were not an individual's motivation, not an individual's creativity, not an individual's contemplation and writing down with clarity even what a a great poetic wordsmith would do. The scriptures are this mysterious impartation from God when men were carried along by God with thought and writing. And Timothy comes back and says the same thing in its own mysterious way. He says, Scripture is breathed out by God. When God breathed into Adam and life came into him. That's, there's some, you know, explain that to me. You know, can you explain the molecular transfer there? No, I, I can't. I just know the Bible says this guy came alive with the life of God when that happened. And this says God breathed out. There was revelation. There was insight. There was the very words of God imparted with all the authority of what God has to say coming into the scriptures by this process. And this scripture is mandated for a purpose. What is scripture's purpose in this passage? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So scripture has been given an assignment in this world for the rest of the time that we're here in this passage. And that's pretty important, isn't it? Is that a little bit important? Can, can I just tell you there probably isn't anything more important to you and I? Because the cornerstone of our lives is what we believe. You're a Christian because of what you believe, right? Believe something different. You can believe something different in such a way that you are not a Christian. Which means you are not right with God. Which means eternity is not yours in the presence of God forever in heaven. So belief matters, doesn't it? What we teach one another. What we raise our eyes and say, wait, that's not right. That's, that's not right. What we protest. Where do we get the ideas to do that? Well, we get them from Scripture. Because Scripture is given the responsibility to teach us. To reprove and correct us. And to equip us in this life. Scripture has that assignment. So the question is, an issue comes up. I'm going to stick a thought in the middle of the room and say, what do we think about that? And then I'm going to add the idea that, well, a lot of people have thought this about that for a long time. And then I'm going to add somebody came up with that a long, 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 long time ago who was an impressive person and a person of renown. 
And you examine that and you put it next to the scriptures and they don't seem to get along with each other. Who corrects who? Does the tradition correct the scriptures? Or do the scriptures correct the traditions? If we look at the way the Bible presents itself, I think we'd have to say, right, the the scripture is the cornerstone. It is the foundation. It is the measuring rod. Everything's got to find its rightness, wrongness, accurateness, inaccurateness based on the scriptures. Because the scripture's job is to teach us. And it's also the scripture's job to correct us when we vary from it. So the scriptures have this unique place. But fact of life, like it or not, at some point we have the scriptures and then church history begins. And sometimes for very good reasons, new ideas are formulated and spelled out. And at some point, other views and other authority is going to come on the scene. So the issue I want to make sure we hear today is the issue of authority. This is an authority issue. Who has the right to say what is right? At some point in church history, there is going to be the installation of the thought that the Pope is a unique individual of all the people on planet Earth. He is uniquely enabled by God to exercise infallibility in some of his role. And to have ultimate authority over what is determined to be right or wrong when it comes to belief. Okay? At some point, now you understand, that's not in the scriptures. That's a development of history. So when that idea pops up, one has to ask, okay, is, is that a right idea? All right, let me, this is why I call this the, the origin of history and the mystery of history. Because if something has been around long enough and you and I don't do the homework on it, it has its own authority by mystery. Not by origin from God, but by mystery. It's just always been what people have always believed and therefore we have just always accepted it. So it gains authority mysteriously in our lives. So let me just walk you back through history a little bit. The idea that there would be one individual throughout church history who would have unique, special authority over all other authority. How, how does that idea get started? All right, if I take you all the way back to the 5th century, something happens in Rome. Something happens in Rome in the 4th century that's extremely important. The emperor of Rome, up until Constantine, was a hostile force to Christianity, was opposed to Christianity, and persecuted Christians. But Constantine, the emperor of Rome, claimed to have a conversion experience in the 4th century. He claimed to come to belief in the God of Christianity. And when he did that, he, he gave favored status to all of Christendom in his kingdom, in the empire. So he began to support the church and to applaud the church and to give resources to the church. Well, he's the emperor who rules from Rome. So guess who benefited from that the most? The bishop of Rome. The official who was overseeing the church in Rome, had the greatest front row seats to the resources and benefits of the Roman Empire. So there's a uniqueness in this location that's here. Matthew Barrett, in his his book, God's Word Alone, says this. Pope Galatius I, at the end of the 5th century, 
when he wrote that the bishop of the see, that would be the bishop of Rome, was to be considered, quote, preeminent over all priests and deserved the church's greatest honor. If you just stopped in that moment and you stood that day in history and you heard this pronouncement, which you had not heard before, And the concept was now being promoted that there is a uniqueness to the bishop of Rome that is unlike any other bishop in the land. And that he is to be uniquely honored. Would you in that moment raise the question, is it so? Who who says that's true? You and I hear all kinds of things. I hope our knee-jerk response is to run back to the origin of authority and say, is that so? Do, Do I find the Bishop of Rome being uniquely given a role over all others when I read the scriptures? And I think you know the answer to that. Barrett goes on and says, Pope Gregory VII followed in Galatius' trail, and in 1075, so some 600 years later, he wrote Dictatus Papi, declaring that the Roman church, quote, had never erred, nor ever by the witness of Scripture, shall err to all eternity. I'm just, can I put a little shock value in this, take some mystery out of this? If, just suppose we had all showed up this morning and, and I made that pronouncement about Lakeview Christian Center. Yeah, exactly. You'd laugh at me and for, right, for good reasons. And you're hearing this for the first time. And you have to make a decision. Do I believe that? And the question needs to become, on what basis would you believe it or not believe it? Well, on the basis of authority. Well, who will you appeal to to be the authority to help you decide that? Does that sound like what the scriptures say? This statement, a straightforward affirmation of ecclesiastical supremacy and infallibility, would be followed by the arguments of Innocent III in the 1200s, who claimed that the Pope was the mediator between God and man having superior authority even over the emperor, right? That this is another new idea that you're hearing for the first time. At this moment, it's not mysterious, is it? It's just catching my attention and making me wonder. But it feels very different to engage that thought in the year 2017 than it would have in the 1200s. And in his papal bull in 1302, Pope Boniface VIII topped them all by stating that only God has the right to judge the Pope. For the Pope has authority over all. Quote, we declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. And this is where I have, you know, let me just make this, this point. Who is protesting whom in that statement? Okay, this is the church lifting up its eyes and saying, if any of you think that you can get right with God apart from the Roman pontiff, you are wrong. Okay, remember, this is not an obnoxious Martin Luther. Neither is it, by the way, if I can let myself off the hook here, an obnoxious Keith Collins. 
This is the church's official statement down through the ages that comes to me and says, if you want to be salvifically right with God, according to this statement, you must be subject to the Roman pontiff. And I have to make a decision about whether I believe that or not. Not because I'm in a good mood or a bad mood. Not because I was raised in New Orleans. Not because of who my mom and dad are. I need some authority to help me. What do I believe here? Now listen, these ideas, if you trace out these ideas, they they typically start in a good place. Right, when you start, if I would just tell you, go home and read this, it's going to be an assignment. We'll come back next week and all of you will show me the page on which it says presiding bishops. Presiding bishops over cities, because that's what the, the bishop of Rome was. He was the presiding bishop over Rome. So if you were to come back next week, you would, you would come back and tell me how much trouble you had finding presiding bishops over cities, regions here. But in the second century, there was this spreading heresy called Gnosticism that was beginning to chew up the edges of the church all over the place. And it was teaching and confusing Christians. So the idea came in order for us to protect the church from heretical teachings that are damaging the church, we should appoint an overseer over the other bishops. And the word bishop in the scriptures is elder. Like, I would be a bishop. The elders in this local church would be bishops in the New Testament sense. But when you get into history, you lose that word, don't you? When I say bishop, you think something totally different. You don't get that from the pages of scripture. You get it from history. So the idea was, let's protect the church from heresy by having a bishop who would oversee the other bishops to make sure that they don't pollute the teaching and and, and make errors into the church. Is that a bad idea? No. Trying to protect the church. It's not a bad idea at all. But you would need to be careful that you just created something that's going to become mysteriously authoritative in a few years. And that position you created is going to be vested with authority. Unique authority. By the time we get to the 1200s, the Bishop of Rome has an amazing amount of influence and power. Listen, we have come a long way from Titus and Timothy in the New Testament. You read Titus and Timothy, you don't get the impression that there's any individual who's ever going to wield that kind of authority and power. That idea develops through history. But it creates the issue of authority. And it has its hiccups. If you read through church history, you're going to find some real hiccups in history. Right? You get to the 15th century, there was this thing called the Great Western Schism. It was a schism because the church was divided because there were three popes simultaneously at the same time. Warring against each other, each of them pronounced one another anathema and cut off from the church. And the church is left trying to figure out, now how do you apply infallibility and ultimate authority to three separate individuals? That's, that, that's a bit of a mess on your hands. And in these decrees that we just read, superior authority alone sits with the popes. How are you going to fix this? So a council is called, the Council of Constance it's called in the 1400s. And the council is now going to take authority over the popes. And going to decree that none of you three are popes. This guy's the pope. And a fourth guy is brought into that equation. And he becomes the pope. 
And what's interesting, what he does is he turns around to the council who put him in as the Pope and says, you don't have authority over me, I have authority over you. And he renounced the authority of councils. And this was, there was great conflicts. There's internal conflicts in the church. But where does the authority lie? There's a part of the history of the church where there was a fight inside the church for the, the authority to lie with councils and not with popes. So th- these things are not clear in scripture, are they? But they are in our history. Now, I, I could chase an enormous thought and I'm not going to do it, but... If one just visited, right, you have this position that is supposed to be modeled from the Apostle Peter. That he was what this position becomes. Now, I, go read the New Testament and take careful notes about who Peter is and who he is not in that setting. And just let it speak for yourself. Remember, there wasn't a moment when this was written, it didn't have to do battle with the 5th century or the 12th century or the 10th century or any of those moments. It just was saying what it was saying. And if you go and read, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to walk away believing that whatever this unique role that later got created became, it was not modeled by the Apostle Peter. It doesn't look anything like the role that he played. You understand this issue of authority... You know, do you find the Apostle Peter forming, informing, adjusting, superintending the giving of Scripture? And if you just read the New Testament, you'd, you'd, you'd be wondering whether Paul was the centerpiece of the church. And if you read the book of Acts, you'd actually wonder whether James was the centerpiece of the church. Because Peter is sitting in the bleachers. Watching these other men do some things. Now he's doing some stuff too. But he, he is not uniquely given something like what we see later in church history. So you and I have got to make a decision. Where does the authority for what we believe lie? Does it lie in a moment in history? Or does it lie in the scriptures? And that's why the reformers cried out. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. All right, let me pull this conversation into our modern setting here for a moment. Because for the most part, most of us are not fighting the sola scriptura battle in this realm. We are fighting it in another realm. And we are fighting it in a variety of ways. And and here's some examples. You'll understand what I mean. But look at this thought from Matthew Barrett. This is very clarifying, very helpful. Beware that as I read this, beware of yourself. As much as you can sit back and say, those people in history with their traditions. Take a mirror out, have a glance, and discover you got some traditions too, don't you? Your traditions, they may come from your family, they may come from years of history. They, warning, they may come from your personality. Because you feel safe if certain things are true and you will do everything in your power to make sure those things are true even though you can't find a bible verse that supports it but it's got to be that way it's got to be all right listen to this thought matthew barrett says in the late medieval period we began to see signs of another view what we call tradition two tradition two is a view that divine revelation has not one but 
two sources, scripture and ecclesiastical tradition. This view holds the position that scripture is not sufficient in and of itself, nor the sole infallible authority and source of divine revelation. He says, where scripture was ambiguous, silent, or even deficient, the second source of revelation, tradition, spoke with clarity and authority, even though it was an unwritten tradition that was in view. That is very important to notice, and it's important to notice whether you do that as well. In this moment where scripture was ambiguous, silent, or even deficient, what fills in that crack for you? And understand, the Bible, inspired by God with all the authority of God's word, didn't intend to detail everything. Nor did it intend to spell out everything. So it is right to say in some places the Bible feels a little ambiguous. Like there's not a firm, authoritative position to be taken here. And here's the warning for us. I don't know if I wrote this in your outline or not. Today, we are not safe from the tendency in practice when we vest viewpoints, ideas, culture, personality tendencies, and religious traditions with authority, and then begin to treat people like they violated God's word if they don't believe or practice these ways or opinions that we hold. And quite honestly, everything I've said up until this point, as long as I've taken to say it, those are not as much issues in this church as what I'm about to say is. Because we will take positions in areas where the scripture is ambiguous or maybe even silent and we will elevate them to determine whether or not we will fellowship with one another. Whether I'll be part of this church for another day or not. That's pretty important. What's the basis for your authority to live your life that way? I'm going to give you a variety of examples. There is an authoritative position taken by a denomination, one that we have great respect for, that says if you don't speak in tongues, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's a tenet of faith. It's an authoritative position that's being taken. Is the scripture really clear on that? Or is there a little ambiguity there? Well, we came because we actually believe that at some point as a group of leaders. And as we study the scriptures a little more carefully, we found, I think I like that word, ambiguity there. We found many examples when people were filled with the Holy Spirit, and baptized with the Spirit, that they spoke in tongues. But we didn't find the Bible presenting authoritatively that the only way to know if a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit is if it's evidenced by them speaking in tongues. We did not find the Bible taking a position of authority in that category. Therefore, we felt it was wrong for us to take a position of authority in that category. So you bump it. What do we sound like today? And I think I represent all the elders in saying it this way. What we see is a common experience in the scriptures of people being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues or prophesying. 
That from the scriptures is a common experience. We would encourage you to be open to the what looks like the most common experience in scripture. Not the only experience in scripture, but the most common experience in scripture. So if you come and say, well, I, I, I haven't spoken in tongues. Am I, am I not baptized in the Holy Spirit? Depending on what denomination you'd be asking that question to, you might get an answer that says, no, you're not, Phil, because you didn't evidence that by baptism in the Holy Spirit. I, th- I think that's an over-application of the scriptures. And I think there's ambiguity there that we need to allow for there to be a, a question mark there. We're not so certain. I think it's common, but I think you could be filled with the Spirit and not speak in tongues. I think that's possible. I think the number of scriptures could support that idea. Um, I haven't run into this, and so if I'm stepping on a toe here, I don't, I'm not aware that I am, but there was a great debate a number of years ago for the King James Bible only debate. Uh, some people that we would have interacted with through history would have had such strong convictions that they would have refused to fellowship in a church where they didn't read from the King James Bible. Do you get that from Scripture? Is my question. Do you get the Scripture teaching you that a 17th century translation of the Word of God into this unique language on planet Earth called English is the authoritative translation to which all other translations answer? And if anyone should not use that Bible, you should not even fellowship with that person. Right, you can find this, I don't, I don't encourage you to waste your time doing this, but you can find this on the web today for people who hold that position. Right, this is an actual quote. A survey was taken of churches and what Bibles that they use. Across all the pastors surveyed, 34% used the NIV. 24% used the King James Bible and the rest used other versions. This result illustrates that Protestant religion is in serious apostasy. Now, listen, you may be here today and you were taught something that made you feel very, very strongly about it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to so much rag on these points as how did you vest authority in that? Could someone stand and say at some point that the King James Bible may represent the most accurate translation? Yeah. That's a whole lot different than King James only I'm not sure, you, you, you know, we wouldn't believe you could make that argument today. We believe there are other translations that are more accurate. So if you want to keep reading the Bible that's not as accurate as others, go right ahead. If you want to read in a language that you don't speak and is a little bit foreign to you, that's up to you. But, but the, you, don't, you don't have a fellowship disrupting principle on your hands. Because the Bible doesn't teach you to look to the 17th century to await the ultimate Bible translation. And listen, there's a list of stuff, right? At some point, these are not biblically defined. They are ambiguous. But the church has died on some of these hills. Length of hair. Women wearing pants or jewelry or makeup or coloring their hair. Dating versus courtship versus arranged marriages, right? I mean, if you got convictions in any of these areas, did did you get those convictions from the authority of Scripture? Does the Bible really come out with such clarity 
in these kinds of categories. You know, this, this moves into the country that we live in. Right? Under the influence, in many of these settings, of, of Southern Baptists. Don't mean to fault them because there's a lot of great things that we respect about Southern Baptists. But in some settings in Southern Baptists, you, you have the influence of the church creating laws in the land. So to this day, you drive through parts of the country and there are dry counties where it's against the law to sell alcohol. The church influenced those laws. There's a, there was a, a county in Oklahoma influenced by local Baptist folks that they created a law that banned dancing. Until 1980, there was a law in the books that banned dancing. Listen, and you're in a church that has this reputation. There are some hills to die on in the scripture. For us to take unequivocal, not going to move me, I'm going to die right here, and there isn't another position available stances. If we're going to highlight those critical matters, we cannot waste our time by acting like we're ready to die on these hills too. Because now we just sound like people who are just obnoxiously against everything. Secular label versus sacred label. That one gets a little messy. What is secular and what's sacred? What's okay and what's not okay? As you engage and interact with the world. So the church has taken these positions. Down through history, you you could read books of literature, but you, you cannot go to a movie. Is it you find that in the Bible? Really? You can listen to classical music. All right, what do you mean by that? I can listen to classical music. I can listen to Bach because he was a Christian. I can listen to Vivaldi. Can I listen to Tchaikovsky? He was a homosexual. You can listen to classical music, but you cannot listen to rap music. I don't think anybody should be listening to country music, but that's a whole other issue. (laughs) Right, at what point can you listen to Vivaldi but not Elvis or the Beatles? Right, listen, this gets really messy, doesn't it? And does that mean we shouldn't have any opinions in these categories? We're all welcome to have our opinions. But where the Bible is ambiguous and where the Bible is silent, you should sound ambiguous and you should be silent as well. Otherwise, you and I are not living sola scriptura. We've added something else. And I know this because I live with the people in this room who get broken hearted because what Lakeview Christian Center feels like to them is that they don't measure up and they leave or they stop coming or they don't want to be in your covenant group anymore. And that breaks my heart because they're leaving over this stuff. And I don't know what we've taught you from the pulpit, but sola scriptura puts the emphasis of authority in the right place. Now listen, do I have opinions about that whole list that I just gave? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Anybody know here that I have an opinion about social media? Does anybody know that I have? Yeah, see, so I, I, have, I have stated my opinion. But I don't have an authoritative position that should tell you you can or cannot be on social media. Or your hair or your makeup, or your whatever. 
To make it sound as though there's an authoritative position here, what that does is it damages the ability to correctly look to what is authoritative in the scriptures. So if, you, if I sound like I've got an allergic reaction to this, it's, it's because I believe my role in church history as a pastor is to be loyal to the authority in this word. Not your favorite subject, not somebody else's way of doing things. And at some point, you will raise a question or we will preach on a topic that I need to sound like, you know, the Bible really is not clear on that. Now, out of my own experience, I feel this way. Or I've known some folks who have had some challenges here and that kind of informs my view a little bit on that. But I should not be... What did I call it in your outline there? Binding your conscience to a position that has come to make sense to me that I can't locate it authoritatively in the scriptures. So you and I are called not just to rehearse, hey, back in the 16th century, those dudes needed to live sola scriptura. Okay, the church today, you and I need to live Sola Scriptura. We need to have a loyalty to what the Bible does teach and be careful about what it does not teach because that sola is meant to keep us from adding things to the Bible in an authoritative way, which obviously we don't want to do that. Eric, you can come back up here wherever you are. And listen, warning in this category. And I'm really toying with, with when we get done with this series, whether we want to take a little visit with some ideas that have come through history. Most of the ideas that become problematic, troublesome ideas for the church, started with good intentions. The presiding bishop was well-intended. He was trying to do a good thing. He was trying to protect the church from heresy and drift into false teachings and false ideas. The idea of a denomination to say, unless you are speaking in tongues, you are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. I I get the passion there. It was a passion to invigorate the reality of experiencing the presence of God. That there should be an experiential dimension to that. So the teachers and the promoters during that time in the history of the church, they had good intentions. They had intentions I appreciate. I'm not sure which position is more harmful to the church. The view that unless you have that experience, you haven't been baptized in the Spirit, or the view that says you can be baptized in the Spirit and have no experiences. Just be dull, unaffected, no gifts operating. Hey, you know what? Those are two problematic views. And I think I'd rather have the first problem, to be honest with you. Than the second one. But these things start with good intentions. And you and I, in our day, can install some traditions that start with good intentions. But the problem with our traditions is that we're going to hand them to a generation. And they're going to hand them to a generation. And at some point, they become mysteriously authoritative. Mysteriously. And they stop asking the question, does the Bible really prescribe this this way only? And at that point, 
that generation could be suffocating under traditions that you and I created for them. Can I just tell you there's enough in the Bible that's authoritatively said yes to and no to. I don't need to skirt on the edges of maybe that's okay, maybe it's not. If the Bible is ambiguous and quiet, then you and I ought to be ambiguous and quiet and not have a greater authority than Scripture does because we've got a problem with that happening in church history, right? We need to have our own problem with doing that today and how we handle the Scriptures and hold our convictions. Amen? Let's stand up together. Lord, this can be an interesting setting, perhaps a difficult setting. Because, Lord, all of us came into this room this morning with ideas, beliefs. Some of them we feel strongly about. Some of them we feel loyal to, connected with. And we just sat in a room... And listen to somebody raise the thought that maybe some of those ideas are out of place. Well, that, that's just hard for a whole bunch of reasons. But God, thank you that it's not new either. Whether we are the audience in a first century church listening to the Apostle Paul challenge our beliefs protest, traditions and views, family connections that we are loyal to. Or we visit moments in church history where somebody stood up and said, hey, this really matters. And others stood up and said, yes, it does matter. And a fight ensued. So Lord, we are not alone that ideas sometimes don't get along well with each other. And maybe we can't sort all of them out. But Lord, there is this idea called sola scriptura scripture alone has unique authority in our lives it speaks to us like no other voice like no other church or movement or collection of ideas like nothing that we have ever read or considered the scriptures are unique And Lord, lest we drift, lest we miss the heart and the reality and the clarity of what you have spoken, Lord, may we be a people today who see Scripture alone in such a way that we make it our business to know what this Word says, to search it out carefully, to be led by your Spirit into its words and into its understanding, so that when I have to wrestle with, why do I believe that? Who says so? My heart can answer. The word of God says so. The God who created all things, who has authority over all things, has said this clearly. 
Lord, may that be what sola scriptura means to us in 2017. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.